This is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, episode two of three on Jewish spirituality, from the place of constraint. So I'm back to the Jewish spirituality series. This is part two of three from the place of constraint. But before I get into that, I have to thank uh, everybody who supports the podcast. You are all such terrific people. In particular, though, I want to give a shout out to Yisrael Frankel, who I saw yesterday at the Chol of Yisrael, the dairy uh, restaurant here in Atlanta. So here's how much of a failure I am as a human being. So Yisrael... Uh, Facebook messages me and we come to find out that he's moving uh, to Atlanta and we keep talking about, okay, well, when you get in the community, let's hang out, all these other things. That was two years ago and I bump into him at the kosher pizza place and it's like, finally, we see each other, but oh my gosh, like uh, on one hand, I was really excited to, to see him and to know that like, yes, he did make it to Atlanta and he is in fact a real human being and not some bizarre avatar on Facebook. But, um, you know, I also was kind of embarrassed because I'm like, I can't believe it. Like, you know, I kept saying, let's hang out, let's hang out, let's hang out. And uh, we never had a chance to. So finally, uh, I got to see Yisrael. So this uh, podcast is dedicated to him. Uh, additionally, I want to thank the five people, and I'm not going to say their names publicly because, um, uh, well, you'll find out why, but I want to thank the five people who allowed me yesterday to be a part of a very important experience for them, which was their uh, mikvah day, their conversion to Judaism. Um, uh, you can't know how exciting that was. I also, I have to say thank you to Makom, which is the... Uh, mikvah here in Atlanta. It's post-denominational. It's a community mikvah. Uh, it's really meant as a community resource. It does not belong to a particular movement or organization, uh, all of these other things. It's a, it's a not-for-profit, separate not-for-profit, um, and they did just a marvelous job. It was so great. We had mikvah attendance, which uh, threw me off for a minute because I didn't think that uh, that was something that kind of came with the program. Uh, I'd never seen that before. So we had mikvah attendance. I think everybody had a really positive experience. Um, and so I just want to thank Macomb for being so uh, generous and inviting, and I look forward to uh, the next time. So Yisrael Frankel, um, my uh, students who got to uh, do mikvah, who, who allowed me to be part of their mikvah experience yesterday, um, and Macomb, thank you, all of you. And thank you to Broadway Cafe for delicious pizza, although you guys are so disorganized, it's ridiculous. <laughs> True to all kosher restaurants, you are terribly disorganized, um, but I look forward to seeing the new menu. So, from the place of constraint, the last episode on Jewish spirituality, which is a three-part series, I talked about the idea of everything being a relationship. And then one of the core aspects of Jewish spirituality is that things are relational. What happens in heaven, may the one who makes peace in heaven make peace on earth, meaning that the way the world is supposed to be ordered in a sort of deep, spiritual, heavenly type of way is what we emulate here. It's why we have laws around ethics, how we interact with others, not just worship, right? We don't go we don't go to a Shabbat service and then be nasty to each other. Matter of fact, the Torah, or actually, actually technically I should say the prophets, the prophets 
talked a lot about that. They talked a lot about, here are you people who are the religious elites, but you're being cruel to those around you, right? So we are supposed to act in a godly way, and that is through uh, the way that we treat others. So everything on a human level is relational. We are in relationship to God, um, and all of this is connected together, and that that is one of the great uh, realizations of Jewish spirituality. Breed, covenant, the idea that we are all connected. So the second part, from the place of constraint. So today is the third of Nisan, which is not Nisan as in the car, but Nisan as in the month. And we have entered into the month where Passover happens. And so the Passover story is about a group of people who are slaves. They're indentured servants, but they're, they're actually indentured to the state. And that's a very different kind of slavery than being indentured to an individual, right? Because if you're indentured or a slave to an individual, it could be because you committed a crime against their family. It could be because you owe them a debt. Not saying that that's right, but I'm just saying those can be some circumstances around that. If you are a servant to the state, uh, it is usually because you owe taxes, and you can either pay the tax or you can pay with your uh, with your labor. It could be that you are a minority group or you're an enemy group that has been captured, and now the tribe or the country or whatever owns you. This this type of slavery was the type of slavery that the ancient Israelites had, and they called this place Egypt uh, Mitzrayim which is the house of bondage. It actually, uh, Mitzrayim means like constraint, right? To be hold, com compacted together, uh, to be prevented from moving forward, if you want to use that term. Uh, and so very appropriate, very appropriate that we have Mitzrayim as the place from which we flee. We flee from constraint into a truest form of freedom where we have the ability to make our own decisions. It's also very appropriate that in the springtime, we have a holiday about freedom and liberation. So imagine that you are a person in the sort of prehistorical time period, and you are living in your cave or you're living in your tent or whatever, or your hut or whatever the case may be, and you notice that the world around you is getting cold. The berries on the trees start to die. The animals seem to go into hiding. It gets cold. It gets dark. In your mind, the world is dying. And because you rely on this theater, you rely on this place around you, your surroundings, for everything, likely you will die and your family will die. But then something happens over time. If you manage to survive, the world starts to warm up. You notice that the animals start to come back. The animals come back, by the way, because plants start to bloom. You think about in the winter, you have seeds. You have these constrained potentials, potentials for life, potentials for grass, for trees, for bushes, for whatever, right? And then when it gets warm and they start to open up, potential comes out and it starts to bloom and the world comes back to life, freedom. We are no longer constrained. The seed is no longer a place of constraint. The plant that is inside the seed is literally in its own Mitzrayim. It's in its own Egypt. It's constrained by the forces around it. 
until it can bloom into a new life. Human beings were constrained. It was cold. They had to hide. They had to huddle together in order to survive until it warms up and they can start to come back out again and open up. It's very appropriate that we have holidays based around liberation in the spring. Judaism is not the only religion that has that. We go from a place of constraint to a place of freedom. Now, the Jewish tradition has been a reaction, I believe, against that constraint. There have been lots of different constraints that have happened to the Jewish people over time, the Passover story being one of them, slavery being one of them, but there have been lots of others. And all of these other constraints that then bloomed into new life create what we have today. So I'm going to share a few of them with you. You can begin to understand that Jewish spirituality is focused on how we react to this issue of being constrained and then being liberated. So, once upon a time, people lived as our metaphorical uh, prehistory ancestors did, right? We were completely dependent on the earth around us. And then we discovered seeds. We discovered plants. And that became the, cult, the uh, agricultural uh, revolution, right? Most likely a woman who had been picking berries and things like that, dropped some on the ground, threw some, an early, early scientist, early agricultural scientist, early botanist, discovered that these seeds could be taken from one place and put somewhere else. And if you put them somewhere else, then the plants grow. And now all of a sudden, the whole game of life changes. We are no longer dependent on what is around us. We can actually craft our environment. So what happened? We suddenly had a surplus of food. A surplus of food means a surplus of people. Whenever you have more food, you always get more people. So we now have lots of people and we have lots of food. Well, we had previously been living in small clans, if you will. So you would have uh, possibly a family and then you would have a, a, a few groups of families really all interrelated, right? And then maybe if you had enough of those, you would have uh, a clan, right? Well, now all of a sudden we have a bigger group. So we have clans who have gotten together and those clans have formed tribes. And because you have enough people and they have free time, uh, they're able to talk about who they are and get to know one another. And then suddenly you have culture that develops. So we've gone from families dependent entirely on their surroundings to clans that have plenty of food, to tribes, to these larger groups, a confederation of clans, which is a confederation of families. So what happens when you have lots of people and you suddenly have uh, lots of food? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to start to specialize. You're going to discover that the alpha male who uh, took care of the primary family, well, well, he makes a great leader. 
So we're going to go ahead and make him the pharaoh or the chief. And, and maybe he has uh, all of this strength because he has some sort of spiritual power. So maybe maybe he's also a priest or, or maybe that elder who's outlived all of us. Maybe that person has some knowledge. So maybe that person is the sage, right? And you start to build these categories of people. These things build up over time. And eventually we have cities, right? We have confederations of tribes, we have leadership, we have bureaucracy, we have specialization. This person makes pottery, this person uh, works in the field, this person has an administrative role. That's when we get into writing. The first two kinds of writing were accounting and poetry. Two of the most opposite things ever. <laughs> but if you look at clay tablets, it was either, you know, taking a, uh, a, a census of how our, I shouldn't say a census, but an inventory of everything that, uh, you know, was stockpiled for the winter or whatever the case may be, business transactions. The other was poetry. We actually didn't write history until much, much later, which I think is fascinating. But in any case, we have now this city-state idea. So the city had a wall or a gate. Interesting that we want to put up a wall too here in America and go back to a city-state system, but whatever. Um, so we had a wall right? Uh, a gate. And the people who were outside of the city couldn't get in without some kind of special permission. And that was basically what life was. We transformed ourselves really in a relatively short period of time from uh, people who were just living in groups of families to the first ever government city system. Now, here's what happens when you have a city-state. You have people who suddenly become anonymous. Think about morality. If you're living with 10 other people, let's say you're like on Survivor or something like that, right? Or you're, you know, even if you don't like that show, you're living on a deserted island. And there's only 10 of you. And you have a shovel. And one day, the shovel goes missing. If someone stole it, you're going to find it, right? Because there's only 10 of you. <laughs> it's pretty easy to figure out who stole your whatever. Um, when you have 10,000 people, you know, a different story, right? So morality codified morality begins to develop. It's a reaction against the problems that the city-state have. Of course, then there's the question of authority, right? We allowed the family who was the strongest to be our leaders because they would protect us. Well, but maybe they're corrupt, right? Maybe the artisans aren't making the art the way that they should be. Maybe they're, they're doing something wrong there. Right? Maybe the people who are employing others in their field are abusing them. And we see that as morally wrong. So we need to do something about that. I believe that that is what happened with the Jewish people. So we started off in Canaan. The story says that we actually didn't start in Canaan. We started off likely in Canaan. So we start off in Canaan and we were a group of people, we were actually several groups of people, who were reacting against this city-state system. We were abused by it. Um, and so eventually we fled that system. And if you look at a lot of what is in the earliest Jewish literature, it is about us being strangers in a place where we don't belong. It's about how society is corrupt and we have to reform it in some capacity, right? These are things that uh, other religions didn't have, particularly the idea of being uh, slaves in another, uh, another place. That the, the idea that because we were slaves in another place, so too do we need to be good to others, 
does not exist in the Near Eastern religious philosophies of the time. We can give up a lot of things. We can say, well, maybe we didn't completely come up with monotheism. Maybe there was sort of a transitionary uh, polytheism that became monotheism. Some people use the word monolatry. So maybe maybe that was it. And you know, ethics, okay, yeah, there was, you know, there were other codes around and, and we knew you weren't supposed to steal and, and things like that. But the idea that we didn't belong where we were and therefore we should be good to those who don't belong was a revolutionary idea. That was something that the city-state system couldn't have figured out. Because the city-state system was all about if you do not belong, we will crush you, right? The gates of the city. We have to keep out the people that we don't want. So Judaism is a rejection of that idea. So we fled, and we fled in a lot of different kinds of ways. And archaeologists are suggesting right now that we sort of fled to the hills, and that we were a motley group of people. We were a mix of all of these different confederations of tribes, and that eventually out of that would become the earliest form of Judaism. What does that have to do with constraint? If society is pressing down on you, if you are the downtrodden, if you are the beaten, whether you were a slave in Egypt, whether you were living in the city-state in Canaan, or wherever the case may be, and likely it was a lot of different places, and we all kind of met each other at different times and in different ways, um, you're going to have a theology, you're going to have a spirituality that revolves around being liberated. And what you discover once you come out of that place of constraint. So I believe that the earliest thing that came out of that constraint was monotheism, the belief in one God. It made sense to a people who had been abused by big systems. Think about what polytheism at the time taught. So it was the idea that every element, the rain, the ground, war, fertility, whatever the case may be, every element of life had a separate deity. And these deities had relationships the way that we do. The god of thunder may be angry at the god of the, the rain, or uh, the god of the ocean may be trying to crush the god of the land, and that's why we have um, the flood. Uh, it could be that perhaps uh, all of the things that are in nature are part of the biological cycle of the gods, right? So if the god is having a menstrual cycle, maybe that's the way the earth works. It's, it's like that. Maybe we bury the dead because we are returning the dead to the womb of the earth mother, right? Uh, all of these different things. So it's almost like a science in a way, but it's amoral. Now you can inject morality into it, but ultimately it's amoral, right? You have to appease all of these deities. You have to appease all of these forces in order to get them to do what you need them to do. And that's where sacrifice comes from. You sacrifice the best of your flock so that the uh, god of the flock, the god of animals, will bless you with more animals. So everything is about a failed science in a way. So what happens with monotheism is something that's really bizarre. It's something that's really out there if you were a person of that time. If you suggest there is one God who runs the whole show and we can have a relationship to that God, and by the way, our people, our tribe, has a particular kind of relationship, the whole ballgame changes because suddenly you don't have anyone to blame for your problems, right? You can't say that it rained because the God of rain created it, right? It, it Ultimately, it's all God 
right? You can't say that you were captured by this um, tribe over here because their god outsmarted or was stronger than your god. Those rules don't apply anymore. So you suddenly have a new theology, and you begin to see, as I mentioned in the first episode, everything is being connected together into one thing. So out of a place of constraint, the city-state, the amoral gods, comes the idea that we were strangers once as well, and we need to be good to others. And by the way, we are all connected to one God who transcends everything, who transcends the boundaries of cities and kingdoms and whatever the case may be. The God in Canaan works, in a sense, when transported to Babylon, or from Babylon back to Canaan. Revolutionary idea. From the place of constraint comes great things. What else happens? Well, we have several times throughout Jewish history where we are captured, where we are displaced, where we are put somewhere else. We have the Assyrian expulsion, Babylonian expulsion. We have times with the Greeks and the Romans where their cultures are pressing against ours again, going back to a place of constraint, and then things grow outward. There's a lot of things I could talk about with that, but I'm actually going to talk about something that's a little bit closer to home. The greatest modern constraint, the Holocaust. This was the single greatest constraint in modern history. Millions and millions of people being subjected by a state. Again, going back to the state. Interesting how cyclical some of these things are, right? A people, a minority people, being oppressed by a state, being put into a place of servitude and being pushed down harder and harder and harder. And eventually there is liberation, literally, truly, liberation from concentration camps. And we, the Jewish people, were able to leave Europe and go to other places to create new lives. Some people stayed, and they started over again. They felt that they were culturally German, or whatever the case may be, and they decided to stay where they were. But they built something new. So what came out of that? What came out of the horror of the Holocaust? New ways of thinking theologically about God. How does a good God allow this to happen? Probably the greatest growth in philosophy uh, within Judaism, I believe, was post-Holocaust because it really gave people an opportunity to sit and think. What else comes out of the Holocaust? A rebirth in the idea of Zionism. Up to that point, Zionism, eh, Jewish state, well, that's, that's that Bible stuff. That's that, that's that old stuff. That was thousands of years ago, right? But now we have this rebirth, this idea that we need a Jewish homeland, and people looking back into history and thinking about that zeal, that promise, and trying to bring it into uh, fruition today. We have an explosion of Jewish art, culture, theater, music, all because people were interacting with each other for the first time in ways that they hadn't, and in environments, different kinds of environments, right? Bring uh, Eastern European Jews who are uh, speaking Yiddish 
and our very traditional in their religious practices, put them in New York with secularized uh, Bavarian Jews who are German Jews, who uh, are classical reform and very austere in their practice, put those two families together. They would have never encountered one another. Likely would not have encountered one another until then. From the place of constraint comes rebirth. Everything that we have, I'm, I'm speaking as an Americanist, I'm speaking as, a, as, a, as an American Jew, that uh, everything that we have in America today, I really believe, comes as a result of that place of constraint. Yes, there were Jews in America prior to the Holocaust. There were lots of them, uh, but not nearly as many as after, uh, after Hoshoah, after the Holocaust. And now we have a kind of culture, and we have a kind of spirituality, uh, and we have a kind of diversity that we hadn't had up to that point. For the most part, Judaism, prior to the Holocaust, was familial, and it was cultural, right? You did have uh, Reform Judaism here in America. You had uh, the Reform Judaism that existed in Germany. You had conservative, which kind of was also kind of modern orthodox. It kept a little bit of the balance. But truly, you didn't have Renaissance uh, until after uh, one of the single greatest disasters in human history. These are the types of things that happen when people are oppressed, when people are pushed down, and they can grow forth uh, into a new existence, into a new place, into a form of rebirth. So what does that mean for you? Right? We've talked about history, we've talked about culture, we've talked about religion, but what about you? What does this do for you? When you are in a place of constraint, when you are held back, it's not so much that you're being oppressed. It's not so much that you are oppressing yourself. It's not so much that the stress of daily life is preventing you from having things. You're actually just incubating, right? You're inside the seed. You're growing. You're getting ready. You're, you're being held in, not necessarily held back. But eventually, you're going to come forth. Eventually, you're going to break through. And so what Judaism can do is it can allow you different vehicles by which to do that. Um, all of these vehicles together for self-improvement, for going beyond the boundaries, are called mitzvot. They're commandments. So that if you are in a position where you're stuck, if you're in a place where you can't break out, what you can do is you can begin to do these mitzvot. And eventually, they're going to help you get further and further into a place of release. What can you do? Anything. <laughs> Supposedly, there's 613 of them. Pick one. And they don't have to be related to each other, right? So if you're having a really difficult time with a friend, and you just, for that, that relationship is just not working, it is just holding you back, and you just feel so constrained, you can do something like give a donation to charity or help someone in need in some way. Go, go help someone buy, buy groceries, you know, an elderly person who can't get around, right? Pray. Find a, a prayer or meditation practice that works for you. Um, make a meal for somebody, right? Celebrate a holiday. Shabbat is every week. You can always light Shabbat. You can always say Kiddush, the, the uh, wine blessing, 
right? You can always have challah, right? You can always have uh, celebratory bread, right? Now, those things don't all necessarily relate to the original problem you were having, right? But if you do these mitzvot, if you do all of these different things, and you explore, and you have fun with it, and you make it an exciting adventure, you may find that you are able to break out of whatever is causing you the problems that you're having. You may be able to go from a place of constraint to a place of release. And it's probably even better that they're not connected to each other, right? Don't do something hoping that it will have some magical effect on something else, right? So if you're having trouble at work, don't think that by giving zedakah, by giving charity, somehow you'll get a raise at work, right? I understand there are some theologies that say that you know, it's about uh, whatever you give, you'll get back tenfold or whatever the case may be. But that's not, that's not what this is about. That's about kind of gaming the deities again, right? That's not how we do this, right? Find little things that you can do. Little mitzvot, whatever they may be. And do them. And over time, you will find that whatever is holding you back, you'll be able to move past. From the place of constraint comes liberation and an entire series of spiritual ideas, practices, history, books, all about this concept. So, in episode one, everything is a relationship. In episode two, from the place of constraint comes liberation. And I guess you'll have to see what's in episode three. Thanks a lot.